Good evening, everyone. The story is told of uh, a series of advertisements that appeared in a daily newspaper. Monday's advertisement read, the Reverend A.J. Jones has one color television set for sale. Telephone 626-131 after 7 p.m. And ask for Mrs. Donnelly, who lives with him, cheap. Tuesday, the article or the advertisement read, we regret any embarrassment caused to Reverend Jones by a typographical error in yesterday's paper. The ad should have read, the Reverend A.J. Jones has one color television set for sale, cheap. Telephone 626-1313 and ask for Mrs. Donnelly, who lives with him after 7 p.m. <laughs> On Wednesday, the article or the advertisement, excuse me, said the Reverend A.J. Jones informs us that he has received several annoying telephone calls because of an incorrect ad in yesterday's paper. It should have read the Reverend A.J. Jones has one color television set for sale cheap. Telephone 626-1313 after 7 p.m. and ask for Mrs. Donnelly, who loves with him. <laughs> Thursday's advertisement. Please take notice that I, the Reverend A.J. Jones, have no color television set for sale. I have smashed it. Don't call 626-1313 anymore. I have not been carrying on with Mrs. Donnelly. She was, until yesterday, my housekeeper. Friday's advertisement. Wanted. A housekeeper. <laughs> Usual housekeeping duties. Good pay. Love in with Reverend A.J. Jones. <laughs> Telephone 626-1313. As preachers... No one wants to get it wrong, especially when we've prayed and we believe that God has laid a message on our hearts. We don't want to misspeak and mar the message with the words from our mouths, and we certainly want the people to hear what God intends. The difficulty, or there is a difficulty, however, and there are challenges between harmonizing these two things. Sometimes there is a chasm as wide as the Grand Canyon, and this is the reason we pray that God will do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. When we consider the prophet Nehemiah, if I were to ask you this evening what it is that Nehemiah is best known for, I'm sure that you would answer Nehemiah is best known for, for finishing the wall. Nehemiah rides into town with zeal, vision, and determination, and in 52 days, he leads the people in rebuilding Jerusalem's broken down walls. He was able to accomplish, by God's grace, in 52 days, how many days? In 52 days, what had not been accomplished in 13 years. Seminars have been presented. Sermons have been preached. Lectures have been given. Books have been written about Nehemiah's work on the wall. But if we believe tonight, that the finishing of a wall is what Nehemiah is about, I fear we've missed the essence of Nehemiah's accomplishment. Why do I say that? Nehemiah's ministry in Jerusalem spanned 12 years. How many years? Yet he finished the wall in 52 days. If he was finished when the wall was completed, 
Why would he remain another 11 years and 300 some odd days? Every one of us can understand taking a victory lap, but no one keeps running for 11 years after the race has been completed in a few hours or days. By God's grace tonight, I want us to look into the Word and see one other thing that I believe God would have us take note of in the life of Nehemiah. Would you bow your heads with me as we pray together? Father in heaven, we need you. We need you to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Open our hearts and our minds tonight. And I pray that you would take the words that you have laid on my heart and that you would give clarity that is beyond anything that I could ever imagine. And I will be careful to give you and you alone all of the praise, the honor, and the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to share with you a couple of things about Nehemiah. I hope you have your Bibles. Now, this is not a seminar, so we're not going to be able to go over everything. So by the grace of God, I've selected a few things for our consideration this evening. Nehemiah chapter 1, Nehemiah chapter 1, beginning with verse 1, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. And it came to pass in the month Chislu, in the 20th year, as I was in Shushan, the palace, that Hanani, one of my brethren, came, he and certain men of Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews that had escaped, which were left of the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said unto me, the remnant that are left of the captivity there in the province are in great affliction and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem also is broken down. The gates thereof are burned with fire. Verse 4, And it came to pass, when I heard these words, that I sat down and wept and mourned certain days and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. The first thing for our consideration as we look through some snapshots in the life of Nehemiah, the first thing we're presented with is Nehemiah's heart. The Bible says that even though Nehemiah lived in the palace in Shushan, that his heart was actually knit together with the people of God who were living in Jerusalem. The Bible says that when he heard, when he what, beloved? He didn't see it on a videotape. He didn't receive a message to be downloaded. The Bible says that he simply heard about the condition of the people of God in Jerusalem, and he was so moved, Scripture tells us, Nehemiah says, that I wept. Not only does it say that he wept, but the Bible goes on to say that he mourned. This was not just a passing experience. Apparently, Nehemiah tells us that this is something that went on for several days. He was so disturbed when he heard about the condition of the people of God in the city of Jerusalem that he did not eat for certain days. I want to ask you, children of God, when is the last time that you were so moved 
about the condition of men and women created in the image of God that you have been moved to the point of tears? When have you become so uncomfortable? When have I become so uncomfortable with the report of the suffering of others that I've been so disturbed that my sleep has been taken away from me? I've got to wake up in the middle of the night. You've got to wake up in the middle of, of the night and simply go to your knees and continue to lift up those who are suffering in prayer. Nehemiah, Scripture tells us, was a man who had a heart that was filled with compassion. Not only does Scripture call us to think about Nehemiah's heart, we've alluded to it already. Nehemiah was a man of prayer. Verse 5, I beseech thee, O Lord God of heaven, the grave and terrible God that keeps covenant and mercy for them that love him and observe his commandments. Let your ear now be attentive and your eyes open that you may hear the prayer of your servant which I pray before you now day and night for the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against thee. Both I and my father's house have sinned. We have dealt very corruptly against you and have not kept your commandments, nor your statutes, nor the judgments which you commanded through your servant Moses. Remember, I beseech you, the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you transgress, I will scatter you abroad among the nations. But if you turn unto me and keep my commandments and do them, though there were many of you cast out into the uttermost part of the heaven, yet will I gather you from there and will bring you under the place that I have chosen to set my name. Now these are thy servants and thy people whom thou hast redeemed by thy great power and by thy strong hand. O Lord, I beseech thee, let now your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear thy name. Prosper, I pray thee, thy servant this day, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, for I was the king's cupbearer. Nehemiah had a heart filled with compassion. Nehemiah was a man of prayer. I want to suggest to you something else, and I'll come back to Nehemiah's prayer, that the work of Nehemiah was not a work with a wall. But it was, my dear friends, a work with people. That's why Nehemiah, that's why his call spanned 12 years in Jerusalem. Because you can take brick and mortar and finish a wall in 52 days, but it takes years to deal with human hearts. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Nehemiah. His life work was not a work simply with the wall, but a work with people. I want to draw your attention to Nehemiah, the eighth chapter. You, many of you would be familiar with this, but I want to draw our attention now to the instrument that Nehemiah utilized in working with the hearts of men and women. Are you there in Nehemiah chapter 8? Nehemiah chapter 8, beginning with verse 1, the Bible says, And all the people gathered themselves together as one man into the street that was before the water gate. They spake unto Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded to Israel. And Ezra the priest brought the law before the congregation, both of men and women, and all that could hear with understanding upon the first day of the seventh month. And he read therein before the street that was before the water gate from the morning until midday. 
before the men and women and those that could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive unto the book of the law. Verse 5, Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. Verse 8, so they read in the book in the law of God distinctly and gave the sense and caused them to understand the reading. And Nehemiah, which is the Tershatha, and Ezra the priest, the scribe, and the Levites that taught the people, said unto all the people, this day is holy unto the Lord your God. Mourn not, mourn not, nor weep. For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Excuse me for a second here. Mm. Nehemiah's instrument of choice was the word of God. Can somebody say amen? amen? I need you to talk to me a little bit just to let me know you're still breathing, all right? Nehemiah's instrument of choice was the Word of God. Beloved, we can lecture and we can share statistics and we can talk and talk and talk, but at the end of the day, the only thing that can change the human heart is the Word of God. We need to hear God's Word. The Bible says that when the people heard the Word of God, that they were moved they were moved to the point where they began to mourn because of what they were hearing. I don't know about you, but the experience we mentioned in chapter one is not something that can be manufactured. It's not something that we can drum up. It is something that comes in response to the moving of the Spirit of God. And I believe that the Spirit of God moves primarily through the Word of God. Nehemiah. Nehemiah called the people of God back to the Word of God because the Word of God was the only instrument that could truly change human hearts. Now, our country, and in fact the world, has been shut down for almost three months, more. Let me ask you, dear friends of mine, how much time have you spent in God's Word during that time? Have you immersed yourself? Have you bathed yourself in the Word of God? The excuses that we've used about not having enough time for most of us were moved aside. And yet, I fear that when many of God's people had the opportunity to immerse ourselves in the Word of God, our first choice was not, in fact, to go to the Word of God. Our first choice was to inform ourselves and feed ourselves with secular reports about what is going on in our world. Now, I got to tell you, I get tired of the news. I can only take it in small doses. I must go to the Word of God and allow Scripture to become the filter or the lens through which I hear and I see about what is going on in the world in which I live. Too many of us, far too many of us, my dear friends, are not putting on the lens of Scripture, the filters of Scriptures, so that we can rightly understand the things that are going on in our world. Conway, what are you talking about? The coronavirus pandemic sweeping across the world. And instead of the people of God encouraging one another to prayer and encouraging one another to fasting and having compassion on those who are actually being laid to rest, how many thousands of people went to a Christless grave, but the people of God have been engaged in banter back and forth about whether the coronavirus actually exists. That's how I know that we've not been immersing ourselves in the Word of God. Because when it's time to pray, we're merely talking. 
when it's time for us to get on our knees and plead for the Spirit of God to be poured out upon this world and lift this pandemic so that once again, men, women, boys, and girls can hear the Word of God and can come to embrace the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior, God's people are engaged with Fox News and with CNN instead of being engaged with the Word of God. The opportunity for immersion, the opportunity to baptize ourselves in God's Word is here, but the reality is we don't want it. We don't want it. Coronavirus is here. Oh, that's fake. That's a conspiracy theory. And then our nation begins to explode with racial violence. Oh, this is another conspiracy theory. No, beloved, the Spirit of the Lord is slowly being withdrawn from this earth. And God's people ought to be the first to recognize it. We ought to be the first ones, but because we are not in tune with the Word of God and our hearts have not been softened by the Word of God, we are ignorant to what's going on around us and we're caught up with how the world views things. I got to say, beloved, that if we were immersing ourselves in God's Word, we would understand that there is no church that has a message for these times like God's church. In the three angels' messages, right in, right in the preamble there to the three angels' messages, the Bible says, I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth, every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. Our message is a message for these times, a message that says, that all men and women have been created in the image of God. A message that says every human being on the face of planet Earth has value because of that image of God. And every man, woman, boy, and girl on the face of planet Earth must hear the gospel before Jesus returns. But we cannot preach this message with power because we are not living this message. We're not experiencing this message. So in a time when we should be the head and we should be instructing the world as to how they can handle situations like these, we are silent because we have not handled them in our own homes. I say again, God's people need God's Word because God's Word brings to bear upon us truths, truths that are specifically crafted for these times. The people responded. We just read about it. The people responded. But I want to take it a step further. In Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 13, not only were the people moved to mourning, but in verse 13 it says, On the second day were gathered together the chief of the fathers of all the people, the priests and the Levites, unto Ezra the scribe, even to understand the words of the law. And they found written in the law which the Lord had commanded by Moses that the children of Israel should dwell in booths in the feast of the seventh month. And that they should publish and proclaim in all their cities and in Jerusalem, saying, Go forth to the mountains and fetch olive branches and pine branches and myrtle branches and palm branches and branches of thick trees to make booths, as it is written. So the people went forth and brought them and made themselves booths, everyone upon the roof of his house, and in their courts, and in the courts of the street of the water gate, and in the street of the gate of Ephraim, and all the congregation of them that were come, uh, that were come again out of the captivity made booths and sat under the booths. This, this is the interesting part, beloved. For since the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, unto that day had not the children of Israel done so. 
and there was very great gladness. Now, I don't know about you, but I kind of see a little bit of a connection here. I want you to look at two passages of Scripture, and hopefully the Lord can make this clear. The first one is found in Judges chapter 2. What book did I say? Judges chapter 2. Judges chapter 2. And we will take a look together. Judges chapter 2, beginning with verse 10. I'll, I'll read verse 9. And they buried him in the border of his inheritance in the mountain of Ephraim on the north side of the hill Gaash. Verse 10. And all that generation, all that what, beloved? All that generation were gathered under their fathers. What does that mean? They died. And there arose, what? There arose another generation after them, which they knew not the Lord, nor yet the works which he had done for Israel. And they Verse 11, the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served Balaam, and they forsook the Lord God of their fathers. When I saw this, my mind immediately in Nehemiah ran back to the book of Judges. And I would like to suggest that one of the reasons for the apostasy and ignorance in God's people is because they had stopped doing what God asked them to do. Now, what's the significance of this Feast of Booths. The Bible tells us in Leviticus chapter 23 that the people were to stay in booths. Listen to me, friends of God. They were to stay in booths as a reminder that God had caused them to dwell in booths when he brought them out of, oh, you're awake this evening, when he brought them out of Egypt. So I want you to follow me. God's people's faithfulness to him was directly tied to their remembering where God had brought them from. And this has generational importance. It has what type of importance? Generational importance. I'm going to suggest something else to you this evening. One of the challenges of keeping our young men and young women in church is because we're not telling them where God has brought us from. I, I know folks, I know folks who say, you know what, this is what my testimony is, but I don't share that. I don't share that because I don't want anyone to know that I actually came into the church for the wrong reasons. I was chasing girls, and that's how I got into God's church. And I say to them, man, that's exactly what young men need to hear. You may come for the wrong reason, but if you're in the presence of God, he has power enough to capture your heart and your mind, even if your motives are impure. That's a testimony. But we're embarrassed. We're ashamed. We want to keep up some sort of, you know, facade. We want people to think of us in a certain way. And so I have seen, unfortunately, in my limited life experience, I have seen young men and young women going through experiences in life, and I've seen another generation that has the experiences that harmonize exactly with what the young people are going through. And if they would only open their mouths and share their testimony it could have profound impact on those young men and those young women. But instead, the very ones who have the experiences, because they want everybody to believe that they're ready for translation, they never share that they've had the experiences. Let me share something else that happens 
when we don't share our experience. Turn with me to the book of John. What book did I say? John, the eighth chapter. John chapter 8, beginning with verse 31. Then said Jesus to those Jews which believe on him, If you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered him, listen to this, my friends. We are Abraham's seed, and we're never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou, ye shall be made free? Jesus answered them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, whosoever commits sin is the servant of sin. Now, there were at least three festivals in the Israelite calendar, and these three festivals were divinely organized as reminders. As what now? Reminders. And there was a pointing forward element, but there was, <clears throat> there was a, a also an element of reminding the children of Israel where they had come from. L let me suggest this to you, my dear friends. It's possible for us to go through ritual and not actually have the experience God intends. Let me say that again. It's possible for you and I to go through ritual and miss God's intended experience. So the Passover, the Passover was a reminder of God's deliverance of his people from Egyptian bondage. Yes or no? But more than that, it was also an invitation for a future generation to enter into covenant with this God who delivers. But more than that, it was an acknowledgement of future generations that just as previous generations needed God's almighty hand to deliver them, so likewise we are in need of God's almighty hand to deliver us. And this was the beautiful element of entering into a covenant relationship with God, but went right over their heads. Not only were they historically incorrect, but they were spiritually incorrect. We are Abraham's seed, and we've never been in... Well, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, folks. How long have you been keeping the Passover again? And that's a reminder of what? How on earth can you say that you've never been in bondage to any man when God has given you an ordinance, a ritual service that you should observe every year to remind you of the bondage that he delivered you out of? Beloved, here's what's so dangerous. When we are incorrect and inaccurate concerning historical truth, we... <laughs> We are unprepared to receive present truth. Here Jesus was standing right in front of them, the truth. And Jesus said, look, I can set you free. What, what you talking about? We need to be free. We've never even been in bondage. Never been servants or slaves to any man. So how, how can you say that I will set you? Jesus says, hey, hey, folks, remember. All that Egyptian Passover, all of that was really about sin. Do you not have a sin problem? And I'm sure some of them would say, well, I've been eating Big Franks all my life. What are you talking about? I've been a vegetarian all of my life. I don't have a sin problem. I know all the hymns and the SDA hymnal, and I can recite so many passages of Scripture. I, I, that's not my problem. Go give that message to someone else unfit to receive present truth because of ignorance about historical truth. Here's the thing, beloved. 
What does the message to the Laodicean church say? It says, you guys, you guys are all right. You, you don't need to worry about those things, right? You don't need to worry about prejudice. You don't need to worry about discrimination. You don't need to worry about racism or any. Don't, don't worry about any of that stuff. That, that's not you. You guys are all right. Yeah, that's what it says, right? What does it say? It says you are, you're blind. In other words, we do not see our condition. Not only did Jesus say in Revelation chapter 3 that we don't see our condition, but we actually think that we are better than we really are. Beloved, on a personal level, we need to be sharing our historical experience with God. We need to share that with our children and our grandchildren. And on a collective level, we need to be sharing the history of God's people with all of the ugly warts. There's some ugly portions, right? We're going to read that in a second. Go back to Nehemiah with me. I want to read just a little bit out of Nehemiah chapter 9. I'm beginning with verse 6. Thou, even thou, art Lord alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all the things that are therein, the seas and all that is therein, and thou preserves them all, and the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God who did choose Abram and brought him forth out of Ur of the Chaldees and gave him the name of Abraham and foundest his heart faithful before thee and madest the covenant with him to give the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, and the Perizzites, and the Jebusites, and the Girgashites, to give it, I say, to his seed, and has performed your words, for you are righteous. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt. You heard their cry by the Red Sea. You showed signs and wonders on Pharaoh, and on all his servants, and on all the people of his land, for you knew that they dealt proudly against them, so did you get thee a name as it is this day. You divided the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land. Their persecutors you threw into the depths as a stone into the mighty waters. Moreover, you led them in the day by a cloudy pillar and in the night by a pillar of fire to give them light in the way wherein they should go. You came down also on Mount Sinai and you spoke with them from heaven and you gave them right judgments and true laws, good statutes and commandments. And you made known unto them your holy Sabbath and, the com and you commanded them precepts, statutes and laws by the hand of Moses, your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and you brought forth water for them out of the rock for their thirst. You promised them that they should go in to possess the land which you had sworn to give them. What does that next word say? But they and our fathers dealt proudly and hardened their necks and hearkened not to thy commandments and refused to obey. Neither were mindful of thy wonders that you did amongst them. But they hardened their necks and in their rebellion appointed a captain to return to their bondage. But you are a God ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and you did not forsake them. Yes, when they had made them a golden calf and said, this is your God that brought you up out of Egypt and had wrought great provocations, yet you, in your manifold mercies, you did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud did not depart from them. Somebody ought to say amen. amen. 
The pillar of cloud did not depart from them by day to lead them in the way, neither did the pillar of fire by night to show them light and the way wherein they should go. You gave also thy good spirit to instruct them and withheld not your manna from their mouth and gavest them water for their thirst. Oh, beloved, God is so good. He's so good that even in our stubbornness and our rebellion and our ignorance and our hard-headedness and hard-heartedness, he still continues to bless us, still continues to cause the sun to shine, still puts breath in our bodies, still gives us the movement and functioning of our limbs. God is good to us despite our rebellion. And I suggested to you that in the history of God's dealing with his people, there are some ugly warts. And in the collective prayer of the people of God here in Jerusalem, they do not only talk about God's goodness, but they are now talking about their own stubbornness and hard-heartedness. But you can't just talk about wickedness and sin without talking about the goodness of God. You can't do it, (laughs) or at least you shouldn't do it. Forty years, verse 21 Did you sustain them in the wilderness so that they lacked nothing? Their clothes didn't wax old. Their feet didn't swole up. Moreover, you gave them kingdoms and nations. You divided them into corners so they possessed the land of Sihon and the land of the king of Heshbon and the land of Og, king of Bashan. Their children also multiplied. You can continue to read the prayer over and over. God is good to his people despite how his people have treated him. The people respond, and this prayer is powerful, my dear friends, is powerful for several reasons. One, because in this prayer, you remember what I explained to you just a few moments ago about the Passover and what it was supposed to do? In this prayer, listen to me, friends of God, in this prayer, they associate themselves with the previous generation's rebellion and stubbornness towards God. Nah, I got to tell you something. We're not comfortable with that. We're like, why should I? Why should I have to pray about something that I never did? Let me get something straight with you, my friends. God never asked us to repent of a sin we did not commit. Somebody ought to say amen. God doesn't ask us to do that. However, however, when our attitudes and our spirits reflect that of previous generations, then you and I become guilty of those same sins. Let me read something to you, friends. This comes from Great Controversy. This is Great Controversy, page 627 and 28. This is regarding Christ's statement to the religious leaders. In like manner, Christ declared the Jews of his time guilty of all the blood of holy men which had been shed since the days of Abel. Since the days of who? Now, how, how, how long ago did he live? Yeah, that was the first murder committed, right? Yet Jesus in Matthew chapter 23 says that upon you shall come all the blood of righteous men who have been shed from Abel all the way to Zechariah. Let let, let, let me go on here. In like manner, Christ declared the Jews of his time guilty of all the blood of holy men which had been shed since the days of Abel. Here it is. For they possessed the same spirit and were seeking to do the same work with these murderers of the prophets. So when we share the same attitude and the same spirit, now had these people killed Jesus yet? No, obviously not because he's speaking to them. But it was in their, it was in their minds and their hearts to do it. And so Jesus said, you are as guilty as they are even though you have not committed the same sins that they have. But given the right opportunity, you will. Great controversy now, page 27 and 28. 
the children. This is speaking of the reaction of the Jews to the preaching of the apostles after Jesus' ascension. The children were not condemned for the sins of the parents. Amen. Oh, your parents didn't sin? Y'all must, your parents must be up in heaven with the Lord now or something. Amen. The children were not condemned for the sins of the parents, but when, ooh, help us, Lord, when with a knowledge of all the light given to their parents, the children rejected the additional light granted to themselves, they became partakers of the parents' sins and filled up the measure of their iniquity. You know what that means, beloved? It means that the status quo has to go. You and I have more light than any generation that has lived before us. It is inexcusable in the sight of God for us to do the same thing that was done 60 years ago. It's inexcusable for us to live the same way that our parents and grandparents lived with all the light that God has given us because to do so means that God is going to judge us as being guilty of their sins. The same sins, I should say. What does it mean for you to live better? What does it mean for you and I to rise above the sins of our parents and our grandparents? I love our children. God has been gracious to us to give us four of them. Let me tell you, I tell my children this all the time. You have to do better than me. The reason your mom and I are here is so that you can stand on our shoulders and reach higher and become closer to God than we have. You must do better than me. So in Nehemiah, when the people pray, they are not only acknowledging the sins of previous generations, but they're acknowledging their own sins and the likeness between their attitudes and their hearts and their spirit to that of their fathers. And as such, they are praying and asking that God would have mercy on them, that God would forgive them. There's another element to this, and that is a prayer of intercession. A prayer of what, beloved? Listen, you and I may not be guilty of the sins of our parents. Listen to me, friends of God, but we live with the consequences of their sins. And so this prayer of intercession, what this prayer of intercession does is it, it asks, Lord, please lift. This is, the, by the way, this is what I believe Nehemiah's greatest accomplishment was. Nehemiah's prayer in chapter 1 becomes more than just his prayer in chapters 8 and 9. It becomes the collective prayer of all those in Jerusalem. So the experience that we read about in chapter 1 is now the experience of all of the people of God. Nehemiah prayed, we have sinned. And now in chapter 9, they're praying, Lord, we have sinned and our fathers have sinned. And this experience comes from an exposure to the Word of God. And now, here it is, the prayer is saying, Lord, lift the consequences of the previous generation's sins off of this present generation. Jerusalem was lying waste and in ruins. The sanctuary had been destroyed, and all of that had happened because of the sins of the previous generation. They were praying that God would restore them and lift the burden of the consequences of the previous generations off of their shoulders. I would submit to you tonight that what we are seeing take place in our world in terms of racial violence is a result of previous generations' sins. And we need to be on our knees saying, Lord, please lift the burden of the consequences and the punishment of their sins. Lift it off of our shoulders. Lord, I don't want to live in this anymore. Lord, I want your church to be unified like Jesus prayed in John chapter 17. Lord, I want men and women of every race, creed, whatever you want to call it, I want them all to come together in love so that we can take this message to a dying world and they can see when they look at our membership that we love one another. 
They can see when they look beyond our worship services, when they see who's coming over for dinner, when they see who we're having picnics with, when they see our kids playing with one another, when they see our loved one for another, they will be convinced that we are your disciples and that Jesus is real. I'm getting ready to sit down. I got to take you to one passage. I had several more, but we're not going to do that. The 107th Psalm. When Nehemiah's experience became the experience of the people of God. By the way, I want to say this to you, my brothers and sisters. Nehemiah was not a pastor. Did did, did y'all get that? That means, and you got a good, good pastor here, good man of God. Don't wait for the pastor to do everything. The people of God can be transformed by your experience on your knees with God, by your experience in God's Word. The 107th Psalm. Give thanks unto the Lord, for He is... For his mercy endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he hath redeemed from the hand of the enemy, and gathered them out of the lands from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. They wandered in the wilderness in a solitary way. They found no city to dwell in, hungry and thirsty. Their soul fainted in them. Then they cried unto the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them out of their distresses, and he led them forth by the right way that they might go to a city of habitation. Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. For he satisfies the longing soul and fills the hungry soul with goodness, such as sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, being bound in affliction and iron, because they rebelled against the words of God and contemned the counsel of the Most High. Therefore he brought down their heart with labor. They fell down and there was none to help. Then they cried unto the Lord in their trouble, and he saved them out of their distresses. You read this chapter over and over again, and it mentions the hard-headedness of God's people, and then it mentions the faithfulness of God. It mentions the what, beloved? The faithfulness of God. And over and over again in the 107th Psalm, it says, why are you not praising God for his goodness? Don't you recognize where he's brought you from? Don't you realize how good he's been to you in spite of what you have done and what you have not done? Don't you realize how good? Oh, that men would praise him. Oh, that there were a heart in men to praise God for his faithfulness to us. Oh, that there were a heart and you and I to be willing to face the ugliness, the warts of our own personal stories, and the warts that exist in the story of God's people as a whole. Oh, that there was such a heart tonight, a heart amongst God's people with a willingness to say, Lord, I'm praying a prayer of intercession. First, I'm asking that you would give me a heart of repentance for my own sin. And Lord, I'm interceding now for your people and praying that you would lift the mistakes of past generations off of the shoulders of this present generation. Lord, please, the 107th Psalm, you know what it says to us tonight, dear friends? When did God answer? It said, then they cried out to him. And when they cried out to him, why did they cry? Because they were sick of their present situations. They cried out to him because they were tired of business as usual. They cried out to him because they desired to see God's mighty hand move in their favor. They cried out to him. And every time in the 107th Psalm that the people of God cry out to God for deliverance, God answers. Did he answer because they were the greatest people on the face of the earth? No. Did he answer because they decided to get their acts together and they they were righteous and they were? No. 
He answered in faithfulness because that is who he is. The story of the Bible is that of a faithful God who loves an unfaithful people. How many tonight have a heart to cry out to God? Let me see your hands. How many of you say, Lord, I don't want to live under the consequences of it? It's enough to deal with my own stuff, let alone living under the consequences of somebody else's. How many of you want to cry out and say, Lord, lift this off of us? Let me see your hands tonight. Please, Lord. I'm going to invite my dear sister to come forward and sing a song for us tonight, reminding us about God's faithfulness. And I want to tell you, God is more and willing to answer if we cry out to him. I just want to make an appeal to you, and I, my appeal for those who are watching, listening, wherever you are, for those who are here, my appeal to you is for a fresh experience first with the Word of God. Uh, I heard one preacher say, if Jesus doesn't make you uncomfortable, there's something wrong. We might, in fact, be worshiping a God of our own making. I want you, I want to encourage you to have a fresh experience with God's Word. I pray that some have already had that, but, but for those of us who have not, open God's Word. Turn the television off. Turn the internet off. And get into the Word of God. The second appeal that I'll make to you is that um, is that you would pray a prayer like we read in or we've read in the book of Nehemiah. We read about it in Daniel as well and also Ezra prayed a prayer like this as well which is a prayer that acknowledges our own sin and a prayer that looks at the sins of those who have gone before us and um, and ask for God to move in a mighty way in our personal experience, but also a prayer that asks for God to move in a mighty way in our collective experiences. None of us can do this alone. We need each other. And God has already given us the message. It's just that space that exists between our heads and our hearts. You know what I'm talking about. Lord, Help us to experience the message for this time. And Lord, lift the consequences of previous generations. Lift it from our shoulders. Please. Two appeals. Not for you to do here, but in your homes when you go home. Please, beloved, please. If in the middle of a pandemic, we can't turn to God. If in the middle of all that we see in our world, we are not moved to the point of turning to the Lord in ways we never have before, what will it take? What will it take? Those are my two appeals. I want to pray for you tonight that as you wrestle with those things, the Lord would do something for you. Bow your heads with me and close your eyes. Loving Father and our God, I want to pray tonight over all of my brothers and sisters who are here in this place, those who are watching wherever they may, they may be. Lord, and I want you to do what only your word can do. We read about it in Nehemiah. Your word is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. Your word can cut to the thoughts, to the intents, to our very motives. It can reveal things to us that we deny even exist. Lord, we pray that your word would have its way with each and every one of us. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to pray these types of prayers that we've looked at tonight. A prayer of repentance for our own personal sin and also a prayer that confesses the sins of past generations, acknowledging that what we are living under in many ways may be related to the sins, either of commission or omission, of past generations. 
and ask that you, the covenant-keeping, faithful God, would lift these consequences from our shoulders. Please, Lord, as your sons and daughters wrestle with the reality of these two appeals, I pray that you would do something mighty in every one of our lives. We depend on you to do for us what only you can do. Thank you for being faithful in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.